Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do give thanks to your name this morning as we rehearse again these wonderful truths of your plan to rescue us from our sin and our guilt by sending Jesus as a baby, living as a man, a perfect sinless life, dying on a cross, rising again, now alive to save all who come to him. So I pray that any who have never come to Jesus, even today, would see their need for him and gladly call on his name and be delivered and free. And Lord, as those who do know you, as we look at your word and see more of what you have done for us, what you have done in us, Lord, I pray that you would stir hearts of love and thankfulness for your grace to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. We've been studying a letter designed to encourage believers who are going through various trials. If we were texting a brother or sister during a time of trouble, we might say, I'm sorry to hear that you're going through such a tough time, or I'm praying for you, And those are good things to share. But is there anything else that might be helpful? Well, the Holy Spirit prompted the Apostle Peter to start off his letter by reminding believers of the blessings of salvation. And so far we've seen that we've been chosen by God the Father, set apart by the Holy Spirit, and washed clean from our sin by the blood of Jesus. We've been born again to a living hope, waiting to receive the inheritance of enjoying God forever in heaven. And Peter assumes we can rejoice in those glorious realities, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, we have been distressed by various trials. Peter continues to discuss our salvation in our text for today. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So in these verses, this morning, Peter talks about past, present, and future aspects of our salvation. So first, salvation announced 
in the past. Here it says, as to this salvation that I've been talking about, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So a prophet is an official spokesman for God, a specially designated representative who speaks with God's authority. And God spoke through his prophets to reveal his plan of salvation ahead of time. You don't have to turn to it, but 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's not just men's ideas and men's um, thoughts about what might happen. God speaks through the Holy Spirit to men called prophets who are now writing these things down ahead of time. Peter mentions two things about this plan. First, it's described as the grace that would come to you. Grace is God's favor to those who deserve his wrath, his kindness to those who deserve his condemnation. But how can a holy God treat sinful people so well? And the resolving of that question is the other thing Peter mentions about the plan of salvation, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the sufferings of Christ are all that he endured on the cross when he bore our sins as a substitute. 800 years before the first Good Friday, the prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 53. I'm going to turn to that. Verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So here's a holy God, and he's taking our sin and putting it on Jesus, and that's how we can treat people like us so well with kindness and favor because he treated Jesus like that. So Jesus endured what we should have had on us for our sin and now can treat us as favored ones, as ones who are in a good standing with him. But after those sufferings, there were glories. He rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. So David, who Peter calls a prophet, in Acts 2, spoke of these glories in Psalm 16 and in Psalm 110, a thousand years before they happened. And then Jesus himself in Luke 24 said this to the two men on the road to Emmaus. If you want to look at Luke 24. Beginning at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So there's the prophet speaking about suffering and speaking about glory. It was all in the Old Testament beforehand. So that's this rescue that God has accomplished in the past, um, mentioned ahead of time. 
Next, let's look at what these verses say about salvation experienced in the present. So verse 12, back in 1 Peter 1. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets announced ahead of time the grace that would come and the Christ that would come, and now these things have been announced to you. How? Through the preachers of the gospel. The gospel is good news, good news of great joy that a Savior has come. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 is Paul's summary of the gospel, if you want to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 15. First four verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So this good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Um, It's similar to what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica. He says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. So it's not just the words of men telling the story of the good news of Jesus, as important as that is, but the Holy Spirit also empowering that and working in hearts to bring about belief. And so this message was believed in this, what is now part of Turkey. And so Peter can say, though you have not seen him, but believe in him. They experience what Lydia and anyone else who has come to Christ has experienced. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken. So if you're a Christian this morning, that happened to you. You heard the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. And left to yourself, you would have just said, no thanks, or that's interesting, or that's nice for you. But if the Lord opens your heart like he did for Lydia, you embrace it and you gladly and willingly come to Jesus and put your trust in him. Believing in Christ is not merely agreeing with some facts about Jesus and knowing who he is. And I say this especially if you've been raised in a Christian home and or a Christian church, you've been to Sunday school and Awana and the child evangelism is spectacular. You hear and hear and hear lots of truth about who Jesus is, but that doesn't guarantee belief. And so let me just share a few verses from the Gospels that are stark reminders of that. Mark 1, 23 and 24. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, 
the Holy One of God. That's a demon speaking. Demons know who Jesus is. Chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And then in Luke 4, 41. Luke 4, 41. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. So don't settle for, I could pass a quiz on who Jesus is. Don't settle for, I could give the right answers. And I even agree with those things. Believing is not just knowing who Jesus is. It is trusting in Christ, embracing all that he says and all that he has done and resting our entire confidence on him. John Gill in the 1700s said, looking to him for life and salvation, leaning upon him as our savior and redeemer, venturing our souls upon him, committing our all unto him and expecting all from him. So it's more than just something that happens in your brain. It's a whole-hearted, whole being and trusting of myself and my eternal soul to Jesus and believing him. Peter mentions twice, these believers had never seen Jesus with their eyes. But he knows seeing is not believing. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning in John 12, 37, for example, It says, even though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So these people had seen miracles with their own eyes, and they didn't believe. So seeing Jesus doesn't guarantee you believe in him, but not seeing Jesus doesn't mean you can't believe in him. And so Peter would have remembered what Jesus said to doubting Thomas in John 20, if you want to turn to that. John 20, 27 through 29. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see, and yet believed. So these people that Peter is writing to, and you, if you are a believer this morning, there's a blessing in believing in Jesus even though you haven't seen him. Peter has another way of describing these people in verse 8. He says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter had never met these people. He had never talked to any of them. He didn't know any of them personally. But he knows something about them. He knows they love Jesus. He assumed if they believe in Christ, 
They love Christ. Now, is that a valid assumption? And not everybody would say yes. So I had a booklet that it was mailed to me from a national ministry. And it said, Christians should love Jesus, but not all of them do. Is that true? We want to be Bereans, right? Search the scriptures diligently to see if the things written in booklets that come in the mail are so. And so right off the bat, you could start with 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. That would say, that's not an option, to call yourself a Christian and not love Jesus, you're under God's curse, no matter what you call yourself. But it also just ignores what Peter says and doesn't say in verse 8. Isn't it interesting Peter doesn't say, you should love the Lord? Or, I hope you love Jesus. Or, it would be great if you would love Christ. He simply, very matter-of-factly says, you haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. Now, none of us can say, I love Jesus as much as I should, or as much as he deserves. Our love is weak and imperfect, and sometimes, like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, we lose our first love, We need to return to it again. But if we are believers this morning, we can say like Peter, remember Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Remember that conversation? Do you love me? Three times. And the third time, Peter said, and if you're a believer this morning, you can say, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That's the bottom line. We just appeal. It doesn't always look like I love you very much, Lord. Just like Peter, when he denied Jesus three times a few days before that. But you know I love you. So these believers believed in an unseen Christ. They love an unseen Christ, and they rejoice in him. Verse 8 it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In verse 6, Peter assumes believers can rejoice in the realities of salvation he had already written about, especially our future hope, even though now distressed by various trials. And here he seems to be talking about rejoicing in Jesus now in this life, And that fullness of joy won't be experienced until we're with Christ in heaven. But even now, there are times in our quiet times or in a worship service or in other settings where we experience a joy that's inexpressible. It's just hard to put into words. And it's full of glory. It's a foretaste of the joys of heaven. Robert Asti in the 1600s wrote this, There is enough in Christ Jesus alone for the soul's full rejoicing in all cases and conditions. Let things go now how they will in the world. As to my outward concerns, 
Yet the ground of my joy is never taken from me. My joy abides. The ground of my joy cannot be taken from me. It is not in the creature. It is not upon earth, but it is in heaven. It is not in man. It is in the Lord. It is not in the confluence or the coming together of these things that are coming and going and in an uncertain enjoyment of them, but it is in the Lord who never fails. So as providential that the Nordstrom's in picking out songs today had a song that says, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. If you can say that, you can have a joy no matter what's going on. Not joy in what's going on, a joy in Christ because he's all-sufficient. So our salvation was announced in the past. It is being experienced in the present, and it will be completed in the future. Look at verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. A day is coming when we will be brought into the full possession of all the blessings of salvation. Robert Layton in the 1600s says, the full deliverance from all kinds of miseries, the safe possession of perfect happiness, when the soul shall be out of reach of all adversaries and all evil. In other words, we'll be safely home with God forever in heaven. We're not all the way home yet. We're still on the battlefield. As Brett mentioned in his prayer, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil making War on us. But a day is coming when we'll be done with all this and be safely on the other side. Peter's already mentioned the future aspect of our salvation back in verse 5. We're being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It isn't revealed yet because we're not in the last time yet. Still future Or the end of verse 7, even though your faith is tested by fire, it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back, that's when these finales happen. Or next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That hasn't happened yet. It's to be brought to us. There's some other verses that remind us that we haven't experienced the fullness of our salvation yet. Go to Romans 13, 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep Why? For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Isn't that an interesting sentence? In one sense, you experienced salvation when you trusted Christ. And some time has elapsed, maybe a few months, maybe a few years, maybe a lot of years, and now your salvation is nearer than it was back when you trusted Christ. So you haven't obtained the salvation of your souls yet. It's still future. Or Philippians 1.6. Philippians 
Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, this work of grace, this work of salvation in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's not perfect yet. It's not complete yet. It doesn't get completed till Jesus comes back. It's still future. Our sanctification process is incomplete now, but it will be complete. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. This total sanctification process will be brought to pass by God because he's faithful when Jesus comes back. Then we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. Go to 1 John 3, 1 and 2. Remember that's God's goal that Jesus will be the first, we will be conformed to his image, that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brethren. 1 John 3, 2 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So our spirits, our souls will be completed in the sanctification process. Our bodies, which now are subject to weakness and sickness and death, will be redeemed and we will receive a new glorified body. Go to Romans 8. Romans 8, beginning at verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of of our body. These bodies groan now. <laughs> and the older you get, the more you groan. The sicker you are, the more you groan. But a day is coming when these bodies will be redeemed. They'll be set free. What will they be like? Well, Philippians 3 gives us a taste. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So our bodies will be like the resurrected body of Christ. And we don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but it's going to be great. <laughs> it's in other places, called the, a glorified Body. It's going to be so different than what we have now. In the future, we will no longer have to walk by faith, but we will walk by sight. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 
Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as also I have been fully known. And someday we will be in the very presence of God, enjoying and worshiping him forever. And so Revelation 7 tells us, we will be part of a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb crying out with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's where we're going. That's what we'll be doing. This worship service this morning was a dress rehearsal for what we'll be doing forever. We'll be worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb around the throne forever with this uncountable multitude from all the nations. That's future. We're not there yet. That's our hope, of being with God and enjoying Him and worshiping Him forever. So as we close, do you have a share in this salvation? Is the Spirit convicting you of your need for salvation? Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all need this salvation. There's nobody exempt from that sentence that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, we're told in Romans 6.23. This separation from God now, spiritually, that will result in physical death. And if that's this problem isn't resolved before physical death, then it's eternal death and separation from God in hell. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. There's endless suffering in a place called hell. It's real. Jesus taught it over and over again. So we need to be rescued and need to be rescued from something horrible. It's not just a party and all your friends will be there and it's no big deal and you're probably not going there anyway. So as he shared in Sunday school, the statistic in America is one half of 1% of Americans think they might end up in hell. And Jesus said, there are many on the road that leads to destruction and only a few on the road that leads to life. So you need to recognize, and only the Holy Spirit can convict you ultimately, that you need salvation. And you also need to understand you can't contribute anything to your salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace, remember that undeserved favor and kindness of God, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you don't contribute anything of works or anything you do or anything you are. It's completely apart from that. And so will you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation? Believe his death on the cross is the only remedy for your sin. And believe his resurrection from the dead shows he is mighty to save all who come to God through him. When the Philippian jailer asked the all-important question, what must I do to be saved? The answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again that you designed a plan of salvation You put it in your word. You executed it through the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. 
You're working it in the lives of people now by your Holy Spirit, opening hearts to believe in Christ. I pray again for anyone here who isn't a believer in Christ yet, that you would convict them of their need for forgiveness and eternal life, and that they would put all their hope and trust in Jesus alone. And for those who have trusted Christ, Lord, I pray we would love you more and more, rejoice in you more and more, and um, just hope in you more and more for this salvation that's still future. Lord, we haven't experienced everything you have promised yet. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look forward to it with eager anticipation. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to close with the goodness of Jesus. Let's stand.